You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Reopening Eve. Reopening Eve in Washington, D.C. We're going to check in with a reporter at the Baltimore Sun to get everyone up to speed on what they can and can't do on what Mayor Bowser is calling social distancing light and the latest on the president's uh, actions as it relates to uh, the whole... uh, COVID-19 and and executive orders on technology. And Calvin Schnorr, senior economist at NARID, checks in to give us his latest on uh, the economy as well. We have a lot to get through, plus 2020 and senior citizen voters. Folks, tomorrow things start to reopen. Things finally start to reopen here in the DMV. Joining us on the telephone line, very appreciative of uh, this person's time, Uh, is Luke Broadwater. He's a political reporter for the Baltimore Sun. And let's talk about Maryland's continuing reopening. Governor Hogan has lifted some restrictions on outdoor dining, youth sports, camps, pools, and drive-in movies. All right, tell us what we can do now, Luke. Well, you can... uh, It really depends on which county you're in. Uh, The governor's orders set a sort of baseline of what... uh, various counties can go up to so you can if you're in a more rural county where there's not a ton of coronavirus cases i think of sort of western maryland where there have very few uh, positive tests you could do everything the the governor says which is you can have outdoor dining starting at 5 p.m friday you can go to uh drive-in movies you can go to uh you can start up uh summer day camps again you can go to the pool you can go to um Various things like that. Now, where this, um, you know, gets tricky is that each county, though, has the flexibility to go along with the governor's um, orders or not. So they they can't open up more than what the governor has allowed, but they can be more restrictive. So what we're seeing in the D.C. area is because that's been the hardest hit part of the state is they have been uh, slower to reopen than Governor Hogan has, typically about a week or two behind him. Why um, is I know that? Because uh, I got to interrupt here. Because to be honest, it doesn't sure. seem. I mean, I, wh- why they're saying it's harder hit, but why is that? Is it because is it really the numbers, Luke? And this is an awkward question to ask. Is it really the numbers, or is it the political ideology of a Republican governor and a liberal mayor? 
Well, you know, I can't speak to people's personal motivations, but the numbers are worse in the in the D.C. suburbs. If you look at Prince George's County and you look at Montgomery County, those are the two hardest hit parts of the state in terms of infection rates and deaths. But of course, there are political um, implications from all of this. Um, you know, the the governor has been under a lot of pressure from the right, uh, the reopen protests to try to move him to open more quickly. And so maybe he is, is more likely to hear those people's concerns than somebody whose base of support comes from the other party, which, uh, you know, the Democratic Party seems more um, concerned about the health, uh, of the health implications of COVID-19 than, say, the Republican Party. So you do have some sort of ideological split there. But again, I, I, I don't I can't speak to the motivations of any of these leaders. They they could very well be basing this completely on the science. And I, I think it is legitimate to say that D.C., the suburbs have been hit harder than the rest of Maryland. It's a it's a fascinating tension and it's really very much on full display. Luke Broadwater's on the phone. He is a reporter for the Baltimore Sun, a political reporter for the Baltimore Sun. What has the business community been saying to Governor Hogan? They want to reopen as quickly as possible. And as <laughs> they wanted to reopen yesterday. Possible. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I hear from a lot of business owners, small business owners, and they've been happy with some things the governor has done. Like uh, they very much liked it that he lifted restrictions on delivery of alcohol, for instance. That something that had been illegal for decades all of a sudden was now legal, and that allowed a lifeline to to bars and restaurants. Um, but they, uh, you know, I think, you know, in talking with these business owners, they they do think the virus is real and a concern, and they're all for wearing masks and social distancing, but they want to see their businesses open as quickly as possible because uh, we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of Marylanders in unemployment lines right now, and uh, many of them are facing very long waits and aren't getting their checks and are very frustrated, and it's causing you know, a lot of hardship on a lot of people to see their businesses closed, to see the, them go out of work, their families sit around waiting for the, for government assistance to come in. And it, it's, it's its own crisis in addition to the, to the coronavirus crisis. Where do you think we are in terms of one month from now and two months from now uh, in, in, the, uh, in terms of where this thing goes? Um, well, it's always it's always risky to make predictions, but it does look like in Maryland that we are seeing declining hospitalizations, which is the the metric that the governor is watching most closely. And if that continues as it is, um, the governor has said he's going to move to reopen even more businesses next, and then eventually to the final phase, which would be basically returning life to normal in Maryland. Um, that, though, depends a lot on whether this virus keeps to uh, continues to dwindle. Um, and there is some concern that as, as restrictions are lifted, there could be another flare-up. So, um, you know, it's really – you really can't predict. But um, right now, uh, a lot of people, including the governor, see – uh, at least positive signs in the data enough to begin reopening. And I will say now that uh, County Executive Elric has had his press conference that all of the jurisdictions in Maryland are at least taking some step toward reopening. There's no longer anyone who's saying we will not reopen anything. Yeah, it's, I can't wait to see how Washington, D.C. reacts uh, this weekend as things are, are slowly starting to, uh, to, to reopen. My friend Damien 
my friend Damien at the place across the street from the Bloomberg Bureau sent me a text today and said, uh, at Bobby Vance, and said, you can sit outside tomorrow, Kev. You can come down and sit outside and have those fried <laughs> buffalo chicken thing, wuton things that I love to eat, these spring rolls that only Bobby Vance has. I miss them. It's been like a million years since I got to sit outside and eat somewhere. Luke Broadwater, a couple more uh, questions before I let you go. He's a political reporter for the Baltimore Sun. He was part of the Polk uh, uh, team that for reporting a couple of years ago he's an absolute ace and we're so incredibly appreciative of his reporting and also that he made time for us tonight luke there's this issue about the testing kits governor hogan got a lot of praise for getting so many testing kits into maryland how are they being dispersed so yeah this is a real bit of bit of concern for many county leaders um the governor to much fanfare did secure this 500 these 500,000 tests from from south korea um, and got a lot of national media praise for it he did say at the time because I, I was at that press conference and i asked him because i know these tests are actually quite complicated it's, it's not enough to just have a test you've got to have reagents you got to have swabs you got to have testing capacity lab capacity um, and I asked him, I said, are these ready to go right now? And he said, no. Um, but, you know, that was really no one else asked him that for quite a while. And so he, for about a week, he, w he went around touting these things. And what we've seen is um, most of them have not been put into use yet. The governor's office hasn't give us, given us a exact number. He says they've gone out to the labs. And as supplies right. come in, they are using some of them. But we're not sure how many. So even though this was a big coup for him to get this great amount of tests, it, it doesn't seem like they're having a, a real impact just yet. Maybe they will in the future, but not just yet. All right. Luke Broadwater, political reporter for the Baltimore Sun. Thank you, Luke. Very much appreciate you coming on uh, to talk about all the reopening in the DMV area. Coming up next, we talk 2020 politics and... The latest on the president's executive orders for Silicon Valley. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Friday Eve, folks, time to talk, time to talk economic numbers. Joining us on the line now, a friend of the program, Calvin Schnorr, senior economist at Navy. Calvin, how are you, buddy? Things are reopening tomorrow. Are you happy? I'm, I'm doing all right. Great. Glad to be back on your show, Kevin. What is the first thing you're going to do once they reopen stuff? You know, I've actually been pretty comfortable with a stay at home. I have a friend who died. I have a brother who was hospitalized, and I'm doing everything I can to maintain the health of people. So I'm Kevin, not in I'm a so hurry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that. And um, you know, that's that's you know, I mean, th these are these socially distant things are so incredibly important. And you know, and unfortunately, it's it, we got to keep doing it. You know, even though things are reopening, we still got to wear the mask. We still got to be safe and everything i i you know i'm sorry to hear that but i'm glad to hear that 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 staying at home has been has been positive for you and i that's uh that's a good thing all right today's economic numbers initial jobless claims 2.123 million durable goods orders fell 17.2 percent and the gdp revised estimate declined at a five percent annual rate in q1 what are your takeaways calvin 
Yeah, we're getting a couple of mixed messages here. And the first is just reinforcing how huge an economic impact this is having on workers and families across across the whole country. Um, but these jobless numbers, even though 2.1 million is a huge number, but that's a third of what it was six weeks ago. And it, it probably is overstating the number of people who are actually having layoffs currently. Because as we've seen, there were a lot of states that were having a lot of trouble processing all the claims. There were delays. So some of these are actually reflecting people who may have been laid off a couple of weeks ago. So the good news is the pace of layoffs uh, really has slowed quite a bit. But also, if you look at the number of people who are getting unemployment insurance, that declined 3.9 million in the week through May 16th. And so that means that there are fewer people who are actually getting benefits, which is probably some impact from the PPP program that is getting employers to take people back on the payroll. So, so there's some signs of, of better news ahead. So, you know, the durable goods orders numbers, uh, there's a huge decline, but two-thirds of the drop was in transportation, non-defense aircraft and motor vehicles. And it really has not spread into general business investment as much as we feared a while ago. So that's another sign that the cuts in the economy are not as broad and deep as you, as you might have thought just from looking at the jobs numbers. You know, I think that's – I really want to just pick up on one thing. I want to rip up the script because I want to talk about something else. But you just said a sign of good things to come. I need to hear this right now, personally. <laughs> so tell me about the optimism that you have or what made you optimistic about today's report. Give me some good news. Well, I was just mentioning in the durable goods report that we see it's just still concentrated in a few sectors. The worst damage is in just a few sectors. There's damage everywhere. Don't, don't, no mistaking that. And you've seen a similar thing with the jobless claims. It's the frontline industries, the restaurants, the small stores, the retail, uh, construction manufacturing. Now, that's a pretty big part of the economy, but it's certainly not the bulk of the economy. Those businesses shut down. Uh, it's been quiet and locked down for a while, and they may be starting to open up again um, as these restrictions are eased. That means that the job market could come back to life in June, probably more likely July. All right, so Calvin Schnorr is on the line. He's a senior economist at NAREIT. Going to read from the Bloomberg Terminal for a minute. U.S. stocks erased gains and ended lower after President Donald Trump said he'd hold a press conference on Friday tomorrow to discuss China, potentially stoking tension between the world's two largest economies. The S&P 500 lost in advance of more than 1% on the president's announcements, with investors speculating that the U.S. will take action against China that could destabilize the global economy, although the precise agenda was unclear. How much are U.S.-China relations playing into this economic uh, forecast, Calvin? You know, investors are skittish about everything because there are so many unknowns. Our primary yeah, anxiety. Investors have a lot of anxiety. They <laughs> a need lot to of chill. anxiety. But our primary There's enough anxiety the going on with COVID-19. Go ahead, Calvin. I'll keep quiet now. Our primary concern is the virus and getting businesses back to work. Sure, China's, China's an issue. It, it's, a, it's a lot smaller issue for the U.S. economy than getting tens of millions of people back to work. Yeah. Well, yeah. But in terms of... Uh, what do you think about the trade relations, especially uh, with how trade, because so much of U.S.-China was related to, to trade, especially in the, in the uh, central part of America. Do you think that could be a potential uh, issue of uncertainty for, for investors? 
Well, this is a difficult issue because it's not just trade, it's geopolitics. And the administration is responding to China's moves against Hong Kong. It's in support of democracy and, and the liberties that Hong Kong has had. That's also another American value. We don't know how this whole thing is going to play out. You know, many people are hopeful that we're able to protect, help protect Hong Kong without disrupting the economy, but we're going to have to wait and see on all of this. All right. How do you think the forecast looks for GDP next quarter? Uh, the second quarter is just going to be the bottom dropping out. There's no doubt about that. We saw the first quarter was down 5%. Second quarter is going to be much worse. But this morning's report was a revision of what we saw last month. shows that a lot of the decline was in spending that's just postponed. In the first quarter, nearly half the decline was from health care, like canceled doctor's offices and dentist's office visits. Those are going to be rescheduled. Another percentage point was from durable goods like auto sales. Those purchases will take place later this year. Now, there's a lot of damage here. Year, but a lot of the decline in the second quarter will also be made up uh, over the coming quarters. Is it hard for you to figure out the third quarter and the fourth quarter, just given the uncertainty of whether or not there's going to be a spike in the fall? Yeah, there's, there's just a huge amount of uncertainty. But if the businesses are able to reopen and we don't have major flare-ups in the virus, it's pretty strong bet that we will see some increase in the third quarter. It probably won't offset all of the decline. Things like restaurants are not going to be at full strength for a long time. Travel is not going to be at full strength. But some of these other things I mentioned, auto sales, you can go onto an auto lot, wear your mask, stand a guy away from the, the dealer, and, and wipe your hands down when you're done. People are going to be buying cars in the summer. All right. People are going to be buying cars in the summer. Calvin Schnorr, you're heard to hear first, senior economist at Nary. Thanks for checking in with me. My friend, we'll talk with you on the next round of Economic Indicators. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. We made it this far, folks, and things are finally, finally finally going to start reopening in the district starting tomorrow. Much more coming up next. Politics 2020 time with Kevin Walling and Eli Yokely. Stick it, keep it locked right here on Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. We are almost there. 
I promise. Tomorrow it is Friday. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And remember, folks, things open. Things are finally going to open. Mayor Bowser, you did it. You did it, Mayor Bowser. Joining us on the line are two friends of the program, Kevin Walling, a Democratic strategist at HD Creative Media, and Eli Yokely, political reporter for Morning Console. Kevin, Mayor Bowser did it. What are you going to go to first this weekend? I'm going to go to Ben's Chili Bowl based on your interview oh, uh, with uh, the founder of that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's nice. I, I, I want a cheesesteak. I, I want a hot dog. I want all that kind of stuff. All right, Eli, what are you going to do? We'll see. I'm just ready to get outside and maybe run into some friends in public again. Um, I'm ready to leave D.C. You know, it's been a long, uh... Here's some breaking news, Eli. I'm going to interrupt. It's my show. I'm ready to leave Washington, D.C. <laughs> Eli, oh, where are you are going? You back do? to Delco? Where Any... do you go, no, I'm ready to start somewhere new. Let's go to a different city. You know, Let's get the heck out of here. Eli, what about you? Well, you know me. I can't wait to get back to Missouri. And uh, I'm go back in July. My little brother announced this week that his wedding is still on. So wow. uh, I'm looking forward to getting home. When is the wedding? July 11th, the day after my birthday. So they're, uh, the uh, pre-wedding night party is my, my birthday party this year. Wow, that's awesome. Good for the, uh, for the Yoke yeah, clan. Good okay. for them. Yeah. So you got some new polls out for uh, seniors will make Donald Trump a one-term president. That's the, or that's the headline from Kevin Walling's piece in The Hill. Uh, Eli, before we get to that, uh, tell us about the new polls that Morning Console puts out. Well, we've had a pretty uh, pretty busy week. Um, there's been a lot going on, and one of the bigger things we've focused on um, in the last few weeks is the, uh, the presidential contest, which has been pretty flat um, throughout most of the, the coronavirus contest, uh, the coronavirus outbreak. Joe Biden has a pretty uh, about a five point lead over Donald Trump right now, unchanged since the previous week. He's had an average of about a four point lead, lead nationwide. Um, one of the things we zoomed in on this week was um, all this talk about a vice presidential candidate for him. I know he set out a, a donor call this week that he would announce one by the beginning of August. And so we tested some of the names. Um, and it turned out Elizabeth Warren is the strongest candidate um, as things stand today. About 26 percent of voters say uh, pecking her would make them more likely to vote for Joe Biden. Um, that includes um, a pretty strong uh, number of African-American voters and Hispanic voters and those voters under the age of, of 45, where Joe Biden's had kind of a tough time. I mean, that, that was the thrust of the, uh, the Bernie Sanders, um, the Bernie Sanders coalition. Um, you know, Amy Klobuchar is a little stronger with his older voters. But but right now, Donald, or Joe Biden has a, a, a pretty uh, good grip on those older voters. All right. Kevin Walling. You talk about he, – he took us right there, Eli Oakley, with senior citizens. You write in the Hill about the senior citizen vote. Why is this so important, and why is Biden playing so strongly right now with older voters? Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch, Kev. Uh, and I, actually, I've been using a lot of the data from Morning Consult. They've done a great job in terms of tracking uh, the president's standing with regards to the, to the virus response. You know, back in, in mid-March, he uh, actually had majority support among uh, older Americans with regards to the response to – COVID-19, the coronavirus, but we've seen a 20-point drop among older Americans, over 65, according to Morning Consult, in response to uh, what the Trump administration is doing with regards to this pandemic. Uh, now he stands at the lowest point next to millennial voters with regards to coronavirus. And, and of course, why it's important, Kevin, it's a great question to ask, is we know seniors turn out to vote. They turn out in every primary election, every general election. That's a group of people that you don't want to take off before a general election in less than five months. Well, so he's got some work to do 
to get those folks back. Eli, you know, I think this is an interesting point, right? Because the senior citizen issue is so incredibly linked to COVID-19 and especially how different states have been handling it. I mean, based upon conversations that I have and media reports that are out there, this is also a deeply localized issue. I think this election, especially for senior citizens, is going to be a deeply, deeply localized issue. And here's why. The nursing homes per capita in counties across the country, in parts of Ohio, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, for example, some battleground states, how local officials and their party's allegiance handles those nursing homes could ultimately tip the scales in favor for Biden or for Trump. When you look at the numbers, now that we know where President Trump is playing bad in the polls, Eli, where does the president have support and strong support and glimmers of hope for his reelection? I mean, the strength of Donald Trump is his base. I mean, that's why you see him uh, leaning into some of these Republican arguments. But we saw this with the Twitter thing today, for example. I mean, the content stuff that he's he's uh, delving into is a big motivator. We've seen this with his movement toward China. Uh, we, you know, blame among most folks is flatlined for China and the coronavirus uh, pandemic. But um, among Republicans, it's certainly surged. Um, I mean, he was doing this before, by the way. I mean, that, that was that was his whole thing with with immigration it was a base first play, um, especially in an election when we've seen this in the past when um, a president is as unpopular as he is and a candidate is as unpopular as that. Um, the the base play is the move to fire up your own supporters and to to try to try to diminish turnout by uh, by the others. You know, it's it's a really interesting point, what you're hitting at and, and comparing China to the immigration issue uh, for 2016. I think that's really smart because I think based upon the conversations that I have with Trump world, it's going to be reopen the economy, close the borders. And I think that's going to be some of the message. And, and, and to, you know, you note Wisconsin and how the president's been playing into local politics there. I think that's another smart point because that is uh, such a crucial state for the president if he wants to win a second term. Um, Kevin Walling, Eli mentioned China. Where is Biden world on China? Yeah, so um, you're seeing, you know, Biden obviously took a tough stand, as we remember, remember when we actually had in-person debates uh, back uh, in December and January uh, of uh, last year and early this year. You know, and, and they're out there touting, you know, that the vice president said, don't take the China's uh, word for any of that in that debate. He had that op-ed that they like to talk about uh, from USA Today from January 27th, saying we need independent verifiers in China. Um, so I think, you know, the much as much as Trump wants to raise and deflect, as Eli points out, and it's a, it could be a winning strategy for them and, and gets pressure off of Trump and his response, you know, the proof is in the pudding in terms of the comparison that, that the Biden campaign is doing in advertising in those states that you mentioned, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, some others, Kev, uh, around China and putting Trump's own words praising the Xi regime praising China's transparency with regards to the coronavirus up against what Joe Biden was saying during those same uh, time point in, in terms of the campaign. Wait, 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 wait. Do you think that that, that they're going to say Joe Biden in real time? Because even Biden himself has said that he doesn't blame President Trump for the virus. He, he has said, I, I don't, I, of course he said that there's to be no blame in terms of the virus itself. But certainly he's calling into question the response, and rightly so, because of what we're seeing with these numbers with regards to the Trump administration's response to the pandemic. Everyone says this is an act of God, and it's a talking point that the Republicans are, are using now that this 
pandemic is an act of God, but it's a question of how we respond to act of gods, right? This is what sunk, you know, uh, George W. Bush in the, in the last years of his administration with regards to Katrina. Katrina was an act of God, but it was the fault of the Bush administration's response to Katrina that sank his numbers heading into 2008 that gave us Barack Obama. So I think the Biden campaign is going to make the same argument here that, yes, it's, it's something, you know, unheard of, this kind of pandemic, but the response alone uh, is completely problematic five months out from the election. Eli Oakley, political reporter for the Morning Consult. How how are the polls in terms of where Biden and Trump stand on the economy? Um, Donald Trump still has an advantage on it. Um, if the election is fought on the the economy today, that's a strong position for for Donald Trump. Um, we've seen in recent weeks a movement toward uh, Joe Biden. Whenever voters are asked who they trust more to handle the coronavirus spread. Um, if, you, if you think about a second wave and this popping back up in the fall and this uh, elevating uh, in the minds of voters, um, that might be something to keep in mind. Um, you know, to the point you guys were talking about a second ago, um, you know, my understanding of how Democrats have been handling this, we've seen it in some of the messaging coming out of Priorities USA, some of these big money Democratic groups, is sort of a calendar and a camera approach to uh, Trump's handling of, of coronavirus. It's almost blaming him for the original sin um, early in 2008. Uh, 20 rather than blaming him for the outbreak itself and that's sort of what joe biden has been leaning into right. in recent days all right gentlemen, um, and it kind of yeah no gentlemen stick around we got much more to talk about kevin walling eli yokely uh we got more to talk about coming up next uh download the bloomberg sound on podcast on apple itunes at bloomberg.com or by downloading the bloomberg business app you can also find me on radio.com iHeartRadio, and spotify i'm kevin cerilli you're listening to bloomberg 99.1 This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Breaking news, President Trump has just released the text of his White House social media executive order just within the last several minutes. The bottom line takeaway, top line takeaways, are that the president is instructing his agencies to compile additional reports to look at how big tech, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Google, how they are dealing with freedom of speech. The executive order also uh, points out China. Uh, and note several different aspects of China and would allow for the agencies uh, to the FTC and other agencies, the FCC, to look at advertising spending uh, from China on these social media platforms. Uh, and one aspect of the uh, executive order, the president writes, quote, several online platforms are profiting from and promoting the aggression and disinformation spread by foreign governments like China. One United, one United States company, for example, created a search engine for the Chinese Communist Party that would have blacklisted searches for human rights hid data unfavorable to the Chinese Communist Party, and tracked users determined appropriate for surveillance. It also established research partnerships in China that provide direct benefits to the Chinese military. So the president releasing his executive order uh, with regards to tech companies, and the president is poised to have a press conference tomorrow on Friday uh, on, ch uh, on China itself. Again, he is noting this uh, in... Um, his executive order. Uh, I, I do want to bring you a comment from Ajit 
Pai, Ajit Pai, of course, uh, the chairman of the FCC, who says in a statement, quote, this debate is an important one. The Federal Communications Commission will carefully review any petition for rulemaking filed by the Department of Commerce. Obviously, Commerce Department wrapped up in this as well. Okay, uh, I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Earlier today, uh, we had that breaking news. So earlier today, my colleague David Weston uh, spoke with New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, and I want to play for you that interview. It was a great interview. And unfortunately, because of that breaking news, we had to let go Kevin Walling and Eli Yokley of the Morning Consult. They'll be back, though, and we'll talk more. Um, but anyway, here's the New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy and David Weston interview. So give us a sense of those numbers, if you would. How much of that is just filling a hole? And how big is that hole? Because you lost a lot of revenue and had increased costs. And how much is really you need to reinvest in order to get things going? Yeah, this is all about, let me give you a couple of numbers. We announced a budget at the end of last week for the next four months. So this is, we extended our fiscal year to September 30. So we're talking about four months in a few days. We had to cut or defer over well over $5 billion of expenses. Or put it differently, we said the revenue loss, as best we could tell, from June of 2020 until June 30th of 2021, $10 billion. Um, this is the difference between, but there's a certain myth out there, well, we're just going to help you all because you, you hadn't managed your legacy realities, your outstanding indebtedness or your structural deficits or your pension obligations. Uh, we, we were doing just fine with that. We were, it's, it's a long slog, but we were, we were making a lot of progress. This is about keeping firefighters, police, EMS, healthcare workers, educators employed. Literally, the consequence or the alternative, I should say, to not getting that funding is a whole lot of layoffs. We think as much as 200,000 more at the state level alone in New Jersey. Boy, and what does that do to services in the state? It would gut them. It would gut them at the very moment when we can least afford uh, the services being gutted. Our residents need those workers more than ever, literally more than ever before. Uh, it's, it's unfathomable, which is why the I think the case is so compelling for that federal cash assistance. Are there ways to make up some of the revenue shortfall in other ways? I know you've increased tolls, but I think that was specifically to do some road work. But other tolls or license fees, taxes, that you could get some more revenue? Perhaps, David, but I, I do mean this. The hole is so significant from this, and it's not just New Jersey. I don't think there's any amount of cuts or any amount of taxes that comes close to filling the hole up. And we're already a state... Uh, that is, you know, not, not the cheapest place to live in America. People come here to raise a family. We have the number one public education system in America, the best location of any state. Uh, we live on talent and location. Um, we, we need, this is one of these moments where the federal government plays that existential role that no, that no one else can play. And we need that role to be played right now to its maximum. What about some infrastructure spend? Uh, we've heard your your brother, Andrew Cuomo, across the way in New, in New York saying, let's advance some of the infrastructure yeah. spend. You have I love that. You the Gateway Tunnel is something that Governor Cuomo and I have been pounding away on. We think it's a game changer. It's a huge, uh, this is building new tunnels under the Hudson River. The current ones were built in 1910. It's a new bridge on our side. It's it's reimagining Penn Station on, on the New York side. That's a great example. Good, good news is the Trump administration just forwarded uh, 90 million dollars uh, 
on the New, the New Jersey side of that. Uh, but infrastructure absolutely is a, is a potential game changer. Uh, it, big, it employs a lot of folks. We're a proud union state. That's a good thing. Uh, we'll, we'll take that uh, uh, in absolutely as soon as possible. Uh, well, President Trump has said some nice things about you, despite the fact that you may be from opposite sides of the aisle. Have you talked to him about this? Have you gotten any uh, encouragement from President Trump that actually that's a good idea? Because he said in the past he wants infrastructure in general. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we speak pretty regularly, and we've spoken mostly about the, the, the obviously this pandemic of late. Uh, but we've absolutely spoken with him and his team up and down, Secretary of uh, tr uh, Transportation. Uh, no, no question, uh, infrastructure is a, is, a, is a, I wouldn't say a magic bullet, but it's one of those levers. Listen, FDR pulled, pulled that lever in the 30s for a reason. Uh, and by the way, it's the other great thing is you not, not only get economic and activity and employment in the here and now, the great thing about infrastructure is it's there 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now and future generations benefit, benefit from it. It's not a wasting asset. Uh, so I think there's a lot of potential without question. Yeah, if you talk about GDP growth, that's a quick way to get it, actually, if you build up your infrastructure as a practical matter. Finally, give us a sense out over the horizon what sort of changes do you anticipate because of this pandemic for New Jersey? And I'll give you an example. Uh, do you think that people after this is over, whatever that means, will continue to commute in daily into Manhattan? Or may that change some of those patterns? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know that any of us know the answer to that. But my guess is that we've been changed permanently uh, from the little but important stuff like social distancing and wearing face coverings to the bigger things. You know, we, we've got a Restarted Recovery Commission that uh, that I announced a few weeks ago uh, with some really uh, incredible wise women and men. Shirley Tillman, former president of Princeton, is a co-chair. Ken Frazier, CEO of Merck, is a co-chair. Ben Bernanke, former chair of the Federal Reserve. These are the sorts of questions they're wrestling with with us. Uh, we got about 25 or 30 percent of our workforce uh, that commutes uh, to where they're going and could, if they choose to, stay at home. And most of them have done just that. I think there's a huge potential shift in that. You've got a whole other group of folks who have no choice but to be close to other co-workers or to the customer. I frankly think that experience will also change. Uh, but I think we're going to look back five or 10 years from now. And I know this is trite and people say it, but I think it's, I think it's real. Just as we did, and you were in the thick of 9-11 uh, in your prior life, we're going to look back five or 10 years from now, as we did five or 10 years after 9-11, and things that we maybe had never imagined uh, were part of our lives, and we took them as a natural part of our life. I think the same thing will be true here. That was David Weston speaking uh, with New Jersey Governor Murphy uh, earlier today on Bloomberg Television. Tomorrow, Marianne Williamson joins us. She's going to check in and give us an update on what she's been up to in progressive politics. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. Things are reopening, folks. Keep positive, keep strong, keep in the light. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.